everyone and welcome back to SALT Talks. My name is Rachel Pether and I'm a senior advisor to Skybridge Capital based in Abu Dhabi, as well as being the MC for SALT, a thought leadership forum and networking platform that encompasses business, technology and politics. SALT Talks, as many of you know, is a series of digital interviews with some of the world's foremost investors, creators and thinkers. And just as we do at our Global SALT Conference series, we aim to provide our audience a window into the mind of subject matter experts. Now, the focus of today's talk is going to be on how a healthy identity leads to better and more sustainable investment decision-making. And I'm very excited to be speaking to a dear friend of mine, Philip Bagdazarians, the managing partner at Private Wealth Advisors, a Swiss multifamily office boutique. Philip is a true global citizen. He's lived in Africa, the US and now called Switzerland home. For over 18 years, he's been working with wealthy families from Central and Eastern Europe, the Middle East and Asia. He's a certified international wealth manager and an expert in financial advisory. And he received his MA in educational science from the University of Zurich. For the last 10 years, he's also been on the faculty of the University of St. Gallen's executive MBL program for sustainable investment decisions. As always, if you have any questions for Philip during today's talk, please just enter them in the Q&A section of your screen. Philip, welcome to Salt Talks. Thank you, Rachel. Very glad to be on board today. No, we're super excited to have you. And the focus of today's talk is how a healthy identity leads to better and more sustainable investment decisions. So I guess we should start with identity. But before we go into that, and without sounding too psychoanalytical, tell me about you. Who are you really? And what's your identity? Yeah. Well, Rachel, you know, I'm a bit like six feet tall and about 70 kilos, a bit more than 70. Well, no, probably quite a bit more than 70 kilos at the moment. But that again, you know, you wrote my, you read my bio and that just tells a bit where I was, what I've done. I told you a little bit of my outside, but that's maybe not enough to say who I really am, as you said. Um, my name says a bit more about my background. I would like to just give you a short overview of my, where my life story came from or how that developed, because I think that will give us an idea of the pieces and the complexity that I think is behind each and every person's identity. So, um, born in Switzerland, um, we, we left the country to go to Africa just a few weeks after I was born. My father was a medical doctor there, together with my mother, who is American. And unfortunately, after already two years that we were in Africa, she was diagnosed with cancer just after my brother's birth. So we went back to the US to her family for treatment. Uh, but tragic, tragically, she didn't survive for very long. And when I was three and a half, she passed away. So grew up with my grandparents, my father, and um, very lucky that my dad found a wonderful second wife just a couple of years later. And after that, when I was seven, we moved to Switzerland for actually the rest of my formal education in my life. But you see, I was uprooted in Africa, planted in the US, uprooted again, brought to Switzerland, didn't speak a single word of German, um, the, the local language here. 
And so they, in the remote mountain village that we landed in, um, the kids, you know, they didn't, some of them didn't want to be friends with me just because I was different. Um, I wasn't familiar to them. Uh, so that was difficult for me to understand why would that be? You know, I played with African kids. I played with Americans. I was, I was the American boy and suddenly in Switzerland um, with Armenian, with an Armenian name, which was Russia. So you see, I carried the Cold War within me uh, during that time. And that obviously, you know, got me thinking about identity. Um, the other thing is, you now how was it on a relational level? Was I an orphan or not? You know, I never, luckily never felt like one, but those are things that do influence personality but in identity is probably even, even a bit more. As a kid, you don't, you don't think too much about that. You just cope and try to survive. Maybe you remember when we first met Rachel, how I looked, right? I do remember, yes. And I was actually very impressed that you still took the meeting because you'd just had a bike accident and your, your lip was so swollen. You could barely talk, but I was very impressed at maybe that's your, the German side of the Swiss, you, you stick to all your appointments. So I was very grateful and happy that you, you did take the meeting that day and you bought me Swiss chocolate at the end of it. So oh, I remember. Yes, so that's again, you know, you see in my very short period of my life that happens. Sometimes you fall, falls flat on your face. Now with the bike, it was my, my doing, you know, I just was, not careful enough, a bit too fast. But I think many of us, you know, they have their origin, they have their, their heritage where they come from, which forms a great part of their identity, especially as kids. And we all have bruises. I'm lucky, you know, this healed more or less quite by itself. So our body is a great example that, yes, we do get bruises, but let's, um, let's get to work, let's heal it. Um, and so I think I'm really happy to say that many of the scars that I might have taken along from that, those difficult moments, they did heal. Um, they did heal. And so, you know, the, the next thing that um, happened to me was that we were in Switzerland, formal education and all that. Um, and of course, the older you get, the more your choices start defining more about who you are. Um, it's, it's not just what happens to you, but it's also how when you actively, you know, choose which direction you want to go for work, how much effort you want to put to your studies and all that. So that's when I think the, the given identity from the outside becomes a bit more influenced by what, what we do and see. And so Yes, please. Sorry, just to jump in there, and I want to dive further into, you know, the choices and the personality aspects, but I know that one of your passions is you work for a, a not-for-profit organization that equips leaders, equips decision makers through identity-based leadership. So how do you actually define identity? What are the components that make that up? Yeah. Well, the, the components that... You know, I try to bring it down to, let's say, three aspects, which makes it a bit easier for everybody to understand. Um, 
this is this is an area I'm still exploring myself. So this is not scientifically totally based or anything, but I try to bring this um, my passion for you know the identity or the the different personalities that that I meet also in my business life and um, in the organization and mix it also to understand what's going on on the markets. How, how do I react? How do my clients react to all these things? So identity actually, I believe has three, three sides. Um, one is how it's called the inside, um, which is you know, our DNA as humans, um, our look, our gender can be different. Um, it, or it influences our decision-making our abilities, our disabilities, our feelings, passions. Um, and I was saying, you know, the coping mechanisms that we develop in life um, and our reactions and reactions. Now, the good thing, you know, what I think is um, we do see the inside part of identity shows we have a need for uniqueness. We have a need for control, for decision-making at all, for happiness, um, and, and generally some inner peace. So just that's it. Um, a third, a second side would be towards the out, the outside. That is what probably is very strong when we're small kids, the circumstances, our culture, our tribe. And then later on relationships um, that we choose or that we just have, family again, language, as I said, you know, can be a very quite defining who you are or, or even a social status, you know, people define you by the language you speak, oh, American accent or Australian, whatever. And then your life story. And what feeds into there, you know, is the need of each of us to, to belong to a group and which gives us security. So that those two basic needs are actually rooted in that part of my identity. And the third side would be the upside. And the upside is, you know, what is my purpose? What is my, the larger thing that I believe in or that I aim for? Um, it can be the authorities, truth, things that are outside of me that I can't just, you know, manipulate left and right. They're above me. Um, or as I said, they can be goals. Businesses would call them the values, their mission statement, things like that. So those, with those three, I think, you know, we can, we can more or less see how complex it is, identity. But also, um, I do want to state that, you know, we need all three for a healthy identity, and they have to be in balance. So you can't leave anyone out, and you can't just overemphasize one or, or just take one away. I think it really is like a tripod. You know, a tripod always stands straight if the legs are the same strength and same length. So that's a bit, you know, how I would see that, yeah. So I know you just said that you can't take one of those pieces away, but I do actually just want to focus on the last one you mentioned, which was the upside. And given your experience and, you know, living and working in so many different countries and cultures, obviously they have very different attitudes, you know, politically, philosophically, spiritually, whether it's, you know, dictatorships or religious states, democracies. What are some of your key learnings from 
you know, the different cultures that you've worked across in terms of that upside. And then maybe we can talk about how that plays into investing as well. Right. Well, it's actually quite interesting to see that um, different cultures, you know, cultures have an identity of their own. I know we know that, but that's what we call culture. But when, we, when it comes to comparing that with the identity of individuals, it does look very similar. Of course, there are individuals within each of these cultures and societies which are totally different. But in general, you know, there are, let's say some, uh, the typical Western investor, or there is, there is generally a bit more the typical um, South Asia investor. And they differ, they differ strongly. And so also thinking about our talk, you know, I did try to see what defines those cultures, which of those three elements is maybe overemphasized and which is withering a bit. So yeah, um, and it does actually fit into my experience with, with clients of all these different cultures. Uh, you were just saying one, you know, the, and without trying, without being, you know, just um, saying that everybody would act the same way. But if you look at, for example, Russia, which actually defined per se that they do not want to have an up. In the 1920s, they said, we do not want to have anything above the, 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 um, the communistic regime. So they expelled religion and anything like that. Um, what happened, they became a policed state um, and everybody was controlling each other. They tried to replace the up by, you know, the, the community. That's why they probably would call it communism. Many, many, many good ideas, you know, to, to, for equality, but they missed something. And what happens is many people of that country still now, they are very, it takes them a long time to, to trust. They don't generally trust because they, they grew up in a society where you can't trust anything. There's no governing body. You don't know what the decision makers will do. So they're, they're always ready to grab their stuff and run. Okay, they, they always want to, that's, that's just what they are. And the Westerners, for example, um, us Westerners, we have a very strong in focus. So we, that's why we're individualistic society. So the, of course we have some strengths. The strengths of a strong in is creativity. We have invention, diversity, quality, excellence, things like that. But if you miss out on purpose, um, which is an up component or you know, belonging, which is one of those out components, it leads to loneliness. And we have one of the most lonely cultures we've ever had is the, is the West. Um, you have cultural divisions, short-termism, and um, we'll maybe speak about that shortly as well, and often some emotion-based um, decisions which don't always turn out to be the most sustainable. So looking at the investor type, they are generally, the individualists are generally um, what we call overconfident, meaning they have the illusion of being in control of what they're doing and, and the markets. Um, so that's, and then emotionally driven pride and greed can be very strong drivers. But on the other hand, the Russian, for example, they're, if they say I'm going into a very risky asset, 
that would be a corporate bond, right? It's really risky. And if you take a Western or let's say the, the US client, for them, a re, I mean, the, a really conservative investment would be a stock, one of the S&P 500s. So that shows you, you know, this is, this is true. You can generalize it a bit for a society and that has to do with, with their identity. Yeah. And so, you know, Philip, yesterday we had a really interesting SALT talk as well, and we were talking a little bit about the anxiety of learning a language and something that's very prevalent in Middle East and parts of Asia and the culture there is this fear of failure or of, you know, this desire to save face. So in your experience across these cultures, how do you see that playing out when it comes to investing? Well, Yes, um, you know, the, let's say the, there, there are probably two groups of um, what we call shame cultures. I don't know if it's a nice word, but, <laughs> but generally as, exactly as you described. I think the, the Far East, which overemphasize the community, the out, you know. Um, what, what you do see there, they have lots of strengths again, you know, the, the unity um, that they have. They have a very strong output. They have commitment, collaboration. They're very efficient. Um, the Kaizen principle, you know, that everyone from the CEO to the cleaner have the same right to, you know, bring in their ideas to make a process efficient. So huge, um, huge benefits and quite stable. You, you would have a sense of belonging. Um, but if you, meet, if you do miss, you know, uniqueness, the, the, the person that can be individual or different, or purpose, then you, you start to have uniformity, which is the downside of such a community or can become. You have you see workaholics that work 24-7 just to, to reach the, the bigger goal there they have. Or then rebellion, fight, flight patterns, things like that. And um, the, from the investment perspective, what I see in, 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 let's say, the Far East, what we have is you have some herding um, patterns. Herding means you just have to follow the crowd. And, and what we say that, what we call the home bias. So the, what is, whatever is familiar with, you, with your surroundings, that's where you invest. You find what is familiar to be less risky than what is not familiar to yourself. So these are things we all can fall for, but I think I do see a bit more a bit more in, in such a community. And South Asia, the GCC, where I also do have clients, you know, the, I think they are probably, I would call societies or states that have an emphasis on the up. They have a common goal. They have, often these are religious states. So they, they have a common sense of, of values, a common set of, um, how we do things. So again, they can, they have a unity which many other countries lack. Um, quick decisions can be made. You know, if you have a, a single leader, for example, a leadership that is lean, quick decision-making, you can focus. Many of these countries are very resilient, but on the other hand, they, if it's overemphasized, over you do see suppression of others, you see um, power struggles, corruption, 
and detachment, double living. You know, they unfortunately, you know, some people, they go abroad to live the life they actually want to live and come back and have to play a game. So you do see things like that happen when, when the out does not really, isn't in balance with the, with the other two. Um, and, and predominantly the investor would be a bit more fear driven. Um, and yes, we, what we also talk about is, is they, they fall for the, the anchoring bias. So what they hear first, what is, what is um, put in their mind since kids, that's, that's what they stick with and they tend to diversify less. Yeah, no, we certainly see that playing out in the Middle East with regards to home bias and things that you're familiar with. Like a lot of people are quite over allocated to real estate, for example. Uh, but back to your point on, you know, well, living, living here at least, we are often very grateful we live in a benevolent meritocracy. It definitely has its upside in certain senses. And, you know, when you were speaking about these different cultures, it, I guess it also ties into the question of, well, what is wealth? Because in some of the cultures you spoke about, you know, wealth and health and so many other things, that's actually part of the community. Like you'd be willing to give up your personal wealth for the benefit of the community. So how have you seen that playing out between East and West as well? Yeah. Um, just, just to give you an example, you know, um, the Western culture is, again, very individualistic and very focused on ownership. So they, the banks here, they will always ask, you know, who do the assets belong to? And in the Western culture, it's clear it's, it's, um, my, it's my wife's or it's mine. Maybe it's both. OK, but that's as far as it goes. If, if you go to South Asia or the GCC and, and they come and say, well, it's family money. The, the Western banks, they don't have a concept for that. They, they just don't know how to handle that. So you say, okay, well, is it your money? Well, no, it's my uncle's, but he gave it to me to, no, no. Well, do I have to, is it the uncle's account? So these concepts sometimes don't fit. And um, on the other hand, I mean, this is just the concept of shared wealth, you know? And I think, you know, there's, there's a benefit, a huge benefit for, for shared wealth. Um, I must say, because I think um, what it helps is understand that maybe I'm not just always an owner of things, but I'm a steward. I'm a steward of the family assets, even if they're in my name, but I might have kids, I might have um, a business to run, the family reputation, whatever. And it's not just mine, mine, mine. So I do think that, you know, we, we can learn from West, from the Eastern cultures, what it means to to be stewards of a larger good that I can share with others. And I think we're, we're starting to, to understand that, that it's maybe not only just an owning society, but a sharing society. Things like that are coming into play just also because they make more sense. They make more sense. Yeah. And when you're looking, you know, with all the work that you've done in identity, perhaps you can tie that into what is the real driver or real drivers behind investment decision-making? Shall I tell you what I learned at school or what I found to be true in life? Because there Let's is a go. big difference. 
Let's go with the truth, Philip. <laughs> well, um, I think we we all would like to believe that investing is a numbers game. And if we just get the figures right, then we have the right decision made. Um, and so you'll see number crunching up and down, big data, whatever. The problem is that the more data we get and the more research we do on that data, the more we understand that it's not about the figures. I mean, not only. Long-term, yes, probably. But many short-term decision-making and prices, which is, let's say, the intersection of all the decision-makers, you know, the market where you have the buyers and the sellers, that is not primarily driven by numbers. It's, it's not a mathematical science. It's a social science. <coughs> Sorry. So I had to unlearn some of the beliefs, you know, that we had and say, well, if you just get the figures right, um, then, then investment decision will be right. And having learned a bit more, I think, um, can help you learn about yourself and why would I be tending to make a decision in this direction and someone else would be making exactly the opposite decision and to, to balance the decision because in the end, um, I have a bias and I have to make sure that I don't fall for that side. <clears throat> and this, the, the social sciences do help to understand the investment decision, which is much more driven by emotions. Um, and behind the emotions obviously is you know, the way I see the world, the way am I fear driven? Is the next big bang just around the corner? Um, am I a doom prophet? Or do I always just see, well, mankind can overcome anything. Um, everything's rosy and, and both exist. And because both exist, you know, there is a market. If we all would know exactly where the price would be, there'd be no buying or selling of anything. You know, we'd just all stick with it. So I do see that, you know, the identity is not only who we are, but also how we view things. So it's, it's, it's become our glasses of how we view the world, how we interpret what's going on um, in the markets as well. Yeah, I think that's really interesting, especially when you look at, you know, I'm a <clears throat> fan of Tesla, for example, but there are certain people that just have almost godlike status. So people, you know, I'm sure there are a lot of investors in Tesla that don't really know about the financials of Tesla at all, but they like and they trust and you know, they've heard of Elon Musk. So they're happy to invest in that, even though maybe sales aren't, you know, doing as well or missing projections or whatever, but we're very driven as well by perceptions of things, aren't we? Perceptions, um, hope, of course, and sometimes greed. Yeah, can be. So fear and greed, you know, they, they do tend to make the markets overreact. Um, but on the other hand, I think, you know, it's expectations, lots of expectations. Where do we think um, the next big thing will be? We've seen that Bitcoin is another issue. You know, what, what is the price of Bitcoin? Nobody can tell. Okay, that's, just, that's just nothing you can, you can put on, on a sheet of paper, but still you could have made lots of money with it or lost, lost lots of money. But... So there are things, and I do believe, you know, the, um, we're understanding more and more 
how identity, um, which is a bit more than just personality, I think, you know, but identity can, is, is a driver for our decisions as well as our investment decisions. And I've heard you say, say before that sustainability is the highest possible long-term value for all stakeholders. So with this in mind, what are some tips for making you know, highly sustainable investment decisions? Yes. Um, I think you know, what you said is the, the value for all. Um, and of course we have to define what that all is and in the past i think the definition of all was just cash a figure you know what was the money um and i think that we're we're coming to a point where we do understand well there's more than just the value is not you can't count value in money only it has to be wider than that um so the let's say the the trend especially now from, from Europe, of course, driven by Europe maybe, the trend towards ESG, I am totally committed to personally because I believe it includes more values than just financial values in the evaluation of a company. Because I believe that in the long term, if you do add more valuations to a company or look at it from a different perspective, um, and the company does the same because they do want to please their investors, obviously, the value for a wider range of people will be seen. And that, that is sustainable. And sustainable means what is good for my future? What is good for my future, my future kids? And um, so just having said that, you know, sustainability is clearly a long-term, a long-term um, goal. It's not, it's not biased towards immediate gratification. It's not, um, it's not asking the question, do I feel like doing this right now? It's more like, how will I feel after doing this? Or another question, you know, will my future me or my future self thank me for this? Will my kids thank me? Will the next generation thank me for my decisions now? And I think, of course, you can say that's very hypothetical, but if we make our managers focus on the next quarter only, and we pay them for that, no wonder they'll do exactly what we pay them for. So I like ESG. Um, we generally like um, family-owned businesses because they tend to have the longer-term view um, than manager or purely manager-driven businesses. Um, and and that, that helps strongly, in my view, yeah. We've actually had a follow-up audience question come in related to, to ESG specifically. And they've asked, you know, your team services a wide constituency of high net worth clients and individuals. Is ESG a trend you're seeing, particularly when it comes to maybe the next gen wealth transfer in the younger generation. And then maybe from there, you could talk a bit more about the differences you see managing money for the younger generation than the older generation. Yeah. Yes, there, there's a, there is a difference. Um, I think the, the older generation, they, they always you know, tended to um, 
be more philanthropic. So they they did they put money out for the good and 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 more gave it away, but their investments were not ESG related per se. They didn't check that. It was a yeah. So they 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 built you know the hospitals or the schools or things like that. The younger generation is looking where's my money coming from? You know, where's my food coming from? Um but you know, is it is it grown healthy? Um, is there child labor behind it or not? They want to know that. Um, I think that's something that is really the younger generation is asking those questions. And I think it's, it's right um, to ask those questions. It's where we put our money does have an impact. And many of the ESG managers, they don't just exclude companies that are you know, doing bad things, but they try to influence those companies to, to improve their, their governance, their social um, values and so on. So the younger generation, they, they do focus stronger on that as I see, yes. And just before I ask this question, I just want to wonder if any questions are off limits, i.e. politics. <laughs> no, no okay. they're not off limits. <laughs> the people so just have to, forgive me if I'm not, they don't say what they really like to hear. <laughs> so we've had um, a question come in, looking from where you are in Switzerland towards the USA, what words, so this is a two-part question, what words would describe how the Swiss have experienced Trump and Trumpism? Well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna twist it a bit and bring it back to, to identity, um, but uh, let, me, let me go around quickly. If you were a business and you need to hire people, do you hire competence or character? And the old way generally was you hire competence, you go for the best graduate, um, you go for the top schools, whatever, and then you then you then you put you you take them on board, you put them in leadership. It doesn't really work often because they were trained in competence, and then you put them into workshops that should start training their um, leadership skills or in, in the end their character, and it doesn't work. So it was interesting for me to, um, at, I was at the VEF in Davos, that was now two years ago, um, and to speak to some of the top educational um, institutions and they say businesses are changing and we need to change our education as well. Businesses are hiring competence, sorry, they're hiring character and developing competence. And looking from an outside to America, I think, um, Unfortunately, the US with the last president, they hired neither or they didn't hire, they didn't hire a politically competent person. Um, they didn't hire a person of character uh, that would value all three parts that I think needs to be valued. And, but let me say this, it's not only, it's not predominantly exactly what Mr. Trump did. In many regards, I think he, he did clean up things that were not correct, um, that were done, um, that were not in the interest of the US and it's okay to, you know, to, to take care of that. But he did it in a way that he broke down more out, I mean, more of the surrounding than he really built. 
There are a few things that he built, especially in the past couple of months as well. But looking at him, I, I personally couldn't vote for someone whose character is so far away from what I think um, would be needed for true leadership. Yeah. I think that's a great answer. So thank you so much for sharing those views. Just a few more questions and then I've actually had an invitation come to you from the audience as well. But maybe you could speak a bit about some of the issues that arise when we don't have a very strong sense of identity. Well, you know, the, the, I think we all have a strong sense of identity, but the question is, you know, how healthy is it? Of course, we, we might be confused and it's, it's not to, you can't, um, it's not about self-worth only, okay? Self-worth is, you know, the, the value that I give myself or how I see myself, to, am I okay with myself? And the problem is maybe first on that, you know, the, if we derive our self-worth from what others think of me, my appearance, if I derive my wealth, my self-worth or my identity on my possessions or my positions, the problem is that is too dependent on others um, or what they think. Now, the dilemma is I can't just derive my self-worth from myself alone either. It doesn't work. I can't just say I'm the greatest. Well, what will smack me in the face is truth. <laughs> it, I'm not. You know, it's, it's, it doesn't work that way that I can, that I can just um, talk myself into a healthy identity. I do need to develop it. And that's why, as I said, I think we need to develop all three in, in the same way. We have to have a purpose and the purpose has to guide our decision-making strongly. And that can be in the small purpose or, or a larger purpose. We need to take care of ourselves as an individual. We, we can take care of our uniqueness. The culture has to take care of uniqueness. You have to be allowed to make mistakes. You have to give yourself the grace to make mistakes. Um, and use them as stepping stones for learning. And we, we, we've heard this before, I know, but um, anyone who's been successful has been unsuccessful 10 times more often than he's been successful, but he used that to learn. So I think it's, it's the grace that we need to give ourselves. And in the end, the, the identity has to be also given from other people to us. You can't, this is not something you can construct. It's not a Facebook identity. You can just put in whatever you want and that's me. No, it's, it's not, it's not completely me. And if I may, I just wanna share how, just one example of how someone else can give, put, speak identity or call identity out into me. Because I think one way would be to surround yourself with people who do exactly that. You give them the authority to speak an identity into you, a uniqueness. Um, and this is a birthday card I got from my daughter. And you see it's a bicycle, so a bit cynical. A few days later, I fell smack on my face. But she said, Daddy, thank you for the encourager, builder, supporter, networker, connector, advisor you are. Thank you for your loving and strong arms, dear and thoughtful mind you have. You're certainly the very best dad we could wish for. So amazing to see you happy, active, and passionate. We're so glad you were born. 
Of course, that touched the daddy's heart. Unbelievable. And this is only my sunny side, okay? <laughs> I do have other sides, which are part of my identity. But I really love to see that this is somebody that loves you, that speaks identity into you. Um, and I think that's what we owe each other as well. Gather two, three persons that you say, okay, I want, they, they like you the way you are, but they don't like you to stay exactly where you are. They love you too much to just leave you there. So if you, if you take two or three people that help you on this route, I think that is probably the best step forward um, because you can't, you can't do it alone. It's amazing. Thank you so much for sharing the, the personal message from inside the card as well. We have time for one more question. And I'm actually going to take a question from the audience because I wish I had asked it. But it says, as someone who relocated several times in your formative years, have you found yourself without the need to belong to a group or the opposite? And how has this played into your ability to develop with, say, Westerners versus Russians? Well, yes, being uprooted, you know, my, I had to learn my roots were, were very weak. Um, I, I, did, I did have an issue to, to learn to belong or to be part of, to be recognized as a kid anyway. Um, so I'm really happy, you know, that I did, did have family and my dad always said he'll stick to us no matter what. Um, so that, that was important. Um, I developed very good and strong wings, you know, so the, the roots and wings, which should be in balance, um, were not very in balance. I can easily move here and there and adapt and go skiing one day and lay at the beach the next, but also in the culture. But yes, um, that ha I had to develop and I had to sometimes force myself to just sit still and contemplate and take time, me time, solitude, silence. And, and those are traits I loved, I learned to love and admire. I couldn't do that um, in my formative years. I was always restless. So, so finding that and, and just making myself and getting into a rhythm of, you know, activity, maybe even hyperactivity sometimes, but then also rest and complete silence, solitude. That helped me balance. But I do think that also helps me you know, understand different cultures and where people come from, um, building, building um, some trust that I think they, they appreciate in our relationship. Excellent. Thank you so much, Philip. It's been such a pleasure speaking to you today. But before I round things off, I do want to mention that you've actually had an invitation uh, to speak at the 2021 Aspen Ideas Festival from Stephen Keenan. So if that is something you'd be willing to do, I will put you in touch and thank you for the invite, Stephen, well, as well. Thank you so much. Yes, it's an honor.